And so if you will open your Bibles to Romans 14, today we're going to talk about relationships in the body of Christ, which you could put in most churches one word before relationships, and that would be messy, messy relationships. Or that is relationships in particular here between the weak and the strong. And so hopefully we will, by the time we're done, know who the weak and the strong are and know a little bit about how relationships are to work out as we apply the gospel to them. So let's start with prayer. Mark Anderson, would you pray for us, please? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet with you this morning. Father, we just pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Uh, we would understand who you are, what you've done for us, and what our duty to you is. We pray that you would be with Tim as he teaches us. Use him as your instrument to guide us through this uh, narrative of messy relationships. May we be blessed by it. May we learn to love those who love you more. Amen. Okay, um, Romans in particular uh, has done a very good job of explaining the gospel that we're justified, that is, declared forever to be in a state of or have a status of being in a right relationship with God because of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Therefore, we are at the same time sinful and yet completely righteous and perfect in his sight. And if we fully understand the gospel, Romans 1 through 5, and experience the gospel, chapters 6 through 8, the result will be a life of grateful and joyous love. But starting in chapter 12, Paul begins to describe what the life of love looks like. And he begins to talk about how our relationships are transformed by the power of the gospel with ourselves other Christians, the world, friends, and even enemies. So now in chapter 14, he has an opportunity to apply everything he has said up to this point to a very specific case. There is a problem within the Roman congregation. He is saying, okay, let me show you how the gospel applies to the problem you are having. And it reminds me a lot of where Paul addresses Peter for refusing to eat with the Gentiles in the book of Galatians. He rebukes him and he tells Peter, you are not walking in line with the gospel. You're not in step with it. And so there is a lifestyle that flows out of understanding the gospel. So what's the problem here? It is that Christians are failing to stop passing judgment on fellow Christians when it comes to disputable matters. Theologians call this the adiaphora. That is things that don't really matter. But here he's talking about disputable matters. And so let's read the first 12 verses. Actually through 13a. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, 
and not let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before our own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who gives, uh, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess um, to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So let's talk about disputable matters. The problem is, there's a lot of judging going on in this church. And there's a spirit of rejection rather than a spirit of acceptance within the church. In other words, there's a lot of spiritual gotcha going on where people are looking at one another and watching one another and sort of taking notes, taking names, and playing gotcha. Uh, and so the area here that Paul calls disputable issues are in the area of conscience. In other words, the basic issue is that some of these church members at Rome cannot distinguish between matters of basic principle or individual presence. The weak do not know when they are in the area of what Paul calls disputable issues and when they are in the area of indisputable issues. In other words, the Bible is very clear that there are certain things that are black and white. They are absolute moral principles that are found in Scripture, that you can't argue against, okay? Like the Ten Commandments, that's pretty clear. Uh, but then there are other areas where it's not so black and white, it's more shade of gray. Black and white, absolute biblical principles, are what all of us are called to obey. There's no debate over those. The debate comes over what we may call where the Bible doesn't specifically address the issue. Personal convictions are what you and I form about the gray area. But here's the problem. Personal convictions can jump into the column of absolutes. And I judge you on the basis of my personal convictions. Let's say that I have a personal conviction that Christians should not eat any animal products. Uh, that we shouldn't eat meat. Now you know this is not my conviction. But let's say that it was. And let's say that every time I went out to eat with you, I looked at you and passed judgment on you when you had a piece of meat of any kind. Then that would be 
The very thing that Paul is talking about. Now, the Greek word used in uh, verse 1 is dialogismoi. Traditionally, these have been called matters of conscience. A matter of conscience is a practice about which God has not specifically spoken in his word. He has not clearly forbidden it, nor has he clearly commanded it. So it is possible to move to two, one of two wrong extremes when it comes to disputable matters. We must guard against thinking that every area is a disputable matter of conscience and against the view that hardly any area is disputable between a matter of conscience. Some Christians want a Christian Talmud. That is, they want a book or a pastor or a church to tell them what is the right thing to do in every situation. And uh, the Bible doesn't do that. And Christians get caught up in what is called casuistry, where they're trying to apply the law to basic uh, uh, principles. So in Rome, the dispute here mainly had to do with eating. Some would eat everything, but another would eat only vegetables. Some felt that Christians, as Christians, they could not eat meat. But there were other differences of opinion, too. Verse 5 indicates some felt they had to observe certain days as holy. In Colossians 2:16, Paul speaks of Christians who still hold to or held to Jewish Old Testament feast days and the various Sabbaths involved. That could be very well what he has in view here. Further, in Romans 14, 14, and 20 indicate that some believe certain foods were unclean. And that's a clear reference to the Old Testament ceremonial laws about clean and unclean foods found in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. These were part of the Old Testament regulations that qualified or disqualified you for worship in the tabernacle or temple. Some people still follow the Old Testament dietary kosher laws. And in Romans 14.21 indicates that the drinking of wine may also have been an issue too. Some Christians evidently felt that believers should not drink at all. Now, let's talk about the weak and the strong. Paul shows us what it means to be weak or strong in verse 3. He says, the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted it. Here Paul shows that the weak person loses his focus on the gospel. We are not accepted by God because of do's and don'ts. We are accepted in Christ. So why does Paul refer to such people as weak? Leon Morris says the following. He's a pretty good, reliable New Testament scholar, a little uh, from the past. He says this, as the discussion shows, he does not mean a person who trusts Christ but little, the man of feeble faith. Rather, the person he has in mind is the one who does not understand the conduct implied by faith. He does not understand what the meaning of justification by faith is grasp. Questions like the use of meat and wine and special days become irrelevant. So the weak would be those who have a either beginning or shallower grasp of the gospel. He's not saying that the weak aren't saved or even that they don't trust Christ. In fact, the weak are generally the most fervent and diligent in trying to please Christ. Their conscience is as big as all outdoors. So where they are weak, 
is in the remnants of a legalistic spirit that still clings to them. They have not worked out. Here's what I've noticed uh, being a pastor for 40 years. If a person comes from a really libertine, wild, chaotic lifestyle where they were out there and they were doing everything and uh, immoral in every way, when they first come into the church, it's almost like the pendulum swings way over here and they become very ultra what? Yeah, this, they, they seem to adopt almost, not necessarily a legalistic theological construct, but they have a legalistic temper about them, a legalistic spirit. I know I did, uh, and I still struggle with it. They have not worked out the implications of the gospel. If you're saved by grace alone, there's no need to feel that you can or must somehow keep God's favor through your various rules and regulations. On the other hand, a strong Christian, Paul doesn't call the non-weak Christian strong until 15.1, but the description is useful as we work our way through the chapter. It's a strong Christian is someone who knows they're saved by the gospel and therefore understands that there are areas in which they are free. For instance, in eating meat. So here, a weak Christian was saying, we must not eat meat. It's wrong for every single person in the universe to be eating meat. See, that personal, personal conviction becomes a personal absolute because you judge people on the basis of it. We must not eat meat. It is wrong even though Christ has said that his people are free to eat any food. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23. Look at that when you have time. A strong Christian was saying, I have been freed to eat meat. It is interesting when you compare this dispute with one described in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That was a conflict between ex-idol worshippers and other believers over whether Christians could buy and eat meat left over after pagan temple <laughs> sacrifices and services. In this situation, the strong would have been the Christians who said, there's nothing wrong with eating this meat. Idols aren't real. Thus, the strong were probably mainly Jewish Christians who had no background in this kind of pagan cult and idol worship. The weak would have been the former idolaters, that is, Gentiles, who had been entrapped in the pagan cults and now felt polluted when they had anything to do with them. And so if you were saved out of that context, perhaps going to the market and buying meat that you know had just been sacrificed to Zeus or anybody, then he would have felt extremely that that meat is unclean and I can't do it. But here in Romans, the roles are totally reversed. The weak are those who are following the Old Testament clean and unclean laws who feel polluted when unclean meats are eaten or other Old Testament regulations are broken, the weak here seem to be Jewish Christians. I don't think they're the Judaizers of Galatians who were saying it was necessary to obey Old Testament law in order to be saved. Paul refused to even consider those people as Christians at all. He didn't call them weak in the faith. But we have something different here. These are Christians who are accustomed to certain practices of eating and observance based on the Old Testament, and they have begun to look down on Christians who don't join them in their customs. 
Now, Paul rather carefully avoids saying that all Jewish Christians are weak. Why? Many Gentiles who were called God-fearers had also been a part of the synagogues before converting to Christianity, and they could have been weak too in this sense. Setting 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 alongside each other shows us that with regard to a particular issue, one ethnic or social grouping could fall into being weak, like the Greeks in Corinth, while another group could be strong. But with regard to another issue, the roles could be, ver be reversed as with the Jews in Rome. So this helps us see the broader principle under the case. The weak are any Christians who tend to promote and regard non-essential cultural ceremonial customs as being critical, critical for Christian maturity and effectiveness. For example, let's say that an older generation in a particular church feels very smugly superior to younger folk who like contemporary music in their worship. They do not deny that young, the younger people are Christians, but they could claim that their music displeases and offends the Lord simply because it displeases and offends them. Thus, they have taken an issue of taste or custom or culture and elevated it to an abiding transcultural mark of spiritual maturity. They have absolutized a cultural expression of taste and are judging others by that standard. Now, verse 3 tells us about attitudes. It shows us that the natural attitudes of the strong and the weak, what they are to each other. The man who eats everything, that's a strong Christian, must not look down on him who does not, the weak Christian. How would he do that? You tell me. How would a strong Christian look down on someone who is weak and can't participate in certain actions? What would he do? Or she do. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's, I'm, that's what he should do, but that isn't what he does do. When he looks down. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or he calls them what? You're just a legalist. Yeah, you're just a legalist. You're narrow. You're judgmental. You're hypocritical. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be around you. When I have a party, you ain't on the list. Okay? You're not coming. Because you're a big quench. You're like throwing a big wet blanket on everything. And so there's a superior attitude. And uh, one of the things I've had to repent of recently is looking down on people who I believe are legalistic and devaluing them in my mind. So to look down on them means that you feel much more mature, advanced, wise, and spiritually sophisticated. You look down on the weak as being simple and narrow-minded. The likely attitude of the strong to the weak is to say, that's your problem. Not my problem. That's your problem. And go on and practice uh, what the weak believe is displeasing and offensive to God. On the other side, there's a man who does not eat everything, the weak Christian, who will naturally condemn the man who eats everything. Notice that verse 3 tells us that the strong will tend to feel superior and indifferent to the weak, and the weak will tend to condemn the strong. 
They will not shrug their shoulders at the strong, as the strong do to them, but will denounce them and warn the strong that they are in grave spiritual danger, they are displeasing God, and are an affront to him. So the strong tend to take the weak too lightly, not to give them enough weight because they see them as being legalistic. And the weak tend to take the strong too seriously and are usually deeply troubled and upset by what they see as licentiousness or loose living. What the weak have forgotten. Paul says that both the strong and the weak must not follow their natural inclinations when it comes to each other. Uh, Verses 3b through 12 are mainly criticisms of the attitude of the weak. And verses 13b through 21 mainly address the strong. Paul is saying to the weak, when you condemn the Christian who does what you consider forbidden, here's what you're forgetting. First, you're forgetting that we're all justified by faith. Why must a fellow Christian not be condemned? Because God has accepted him. And the word accepted is the same word used in the initial exhortation to accept one another. In other words, Paul powerfully is saying here, you should welcome one another because God has welcomed and accepted you. And this is powerful. Paul says we must remember that whatever a Christian's strength or weakness in behavior or the views he or she has, they are completely loved and accepted by the Father through Christ. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. Now, Paul applies the gospel to such disputes, and he tells his readers that they need to be controlled in their attitudes by the knowledge that God accepts the other person and finds him righteous in Christ. John Stott writes this in his book, The Message to the Romans. How dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude toward them is. And the principle is better, even than the golden rule, to treat others as we would treat ourselves. It is safe to treat others as we would like to treat us, but it's safer still to treat them as God does. Second, not only have they forgotten that we're justified by faith, but they've forgotten that there's only one judge, and that's God. Verse 4 is a strong warning against denouncing a Christian who differs from you in a matter of conscience. The word judge here does not mean a simple evaluation, but a condemnation and a denunciation. For example, Paul says that eating meat is not sinful in itself, but a Christian may decide for very good reasons, to abstain. In that case, it is very wrong to judge and condemn others uh, for drinking, let's say. Why? Who are you to judge someone else's servant? That person is not your servant. Let the Master Jesus Christ do the judging as to whether the other person is serving him properly. We are not qualified to judge. Third, they have forgotten to think through their own position. We each need to consider and get convinced about the rightness and wrongness of any practice. Okay, The weak need to remember that they might be wrong. Verse 5 is quite interesting and important. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, Paul says, we need to think about our behavior. We need to think it out. We need to do ethics. First, we need to see whether the Bible really commands or forbids a practice or whether it leaves the conscience free. 
Second, even if the Bible leaves us free, we may decide to abstain from a practice because it leads individuals to sin or it leads others to sin. Determining all this takes thought and prayer, and Paul is especially telling the weak to do this. Since many people live with a tendency to legalism and are full of scruples because they haven't studied the Bible and thought things are out. We seek to educate our conscience and have the humility to acknowledge where we have been wrong. Carefully hear that term, educate your conscience, because that's very important in these matters. But the fourth thing we need to do is we need to act according to our educated conscience. A Christian should not engage in specific practice unless they've thought it out and are firmly convinced that it is right. Paul gives an idea of how to think out whether a practice can be done or not. He who eats meat eats it to the Lord, gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. The Christian must not look at any practice and say, can I do this before Christ? Can I do it with my eye upon him? Can I do it in his name thanking him for it? We do not live to ourselves, but as people who have a Lord, we want to please him. We belong to him. So our consciences should be informed. They must not be injured. So here's the challenge to the weak. Sorry I'm going through this so fast, but there's no other way to do it. Okay? Paul draws these challenges to the weak together in verses 9 through 13. Here is his point. Based on what he has already said, Jesus lived and died and rose so that you could be his brothers, so that... So how how can you shun or sneer at a brother he died for? How can you stand in God's place of judgment when you yourself will stand before him and be judged? You should not focus on uh you should focus on your own conduct and how you will answer for it when you meet God. Jonathan Edwards was once asked to comment on the behavior of another Christian. And Jonathan Edwards this is in his uh work on charity and its fruits. He said, I, I'm just going to give it in my language, Tennessee language, okay? He said, I got so much trouble in my own backyard. I ain't got time to fool with his. In other words, he was more, he said, the essence of spiritual pride is wanting to fix other people in this regard. And uh, that's in essence what he said. So, we are to accept anyone the Lord has accepted in the gospel. We're not to condemn anyone for whom there is now no condemnation in the gospel, we must ensure that our consciences are in line with the freedom of the gospel and we should make sure we are living with the gospel. Part 2, verse 13. Strong is don't cause a brother to stumble. The beginning of verse 13 looks both back to conclude Paul's words to the weak Christian and forward to indicate Paul's teaching to the strong. The strong Christian must stop passing judgment and instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Paul uses the same word, stumble, proskama, in uh, verse 20. So verse 21 explains that to stumble is to fall. Paul is saying that when the strong are insensitive to the weak, looking down on them, they can lead the weak into sin. How? How does that happen? At the very least, it tempts the weak to harshness and a condemning spirit. As Mark mentioned a while ago, eating meat right in front of them and, and, and uh, 
uh, taunting them with it. Uh, it tempts the weak to harshness, a condemning spirit, a breaking of fellowship, and an unkind, ungracious spirit, and the kind of judgmental attitude that Paul warned about in verses 3 through 13. But possibly, the action of the strong could lead the weak to begin doing things that are against their consciences. Notice that Paul is quite clear that meat is clean. The weak are simply wrong about food and drink. Paul may be referring to Jesus' words in Mark 7, 14 and 15. God also gave a word to Peter in the sheep vision in Acts chapter 10 about the unclean animals. What was unclean is now clean. Okay? God did not create any material thing as evil. I know somebody's going to say something about marijuana, so just don't right now, okay? Just don't. I'm not going to answer that yet. I'll let you do your own research on that. Uh, we should enjoy material things such as meat with Thanksgiving. The reason for having food laws in the Old Testament was probably that there were one of the ways that God taught the Israelites they could not just rush into his presence as they were. They needed purity. Now in Christ we are brought into his presence, holy and without blemish. And therefore, to maintain a squeamishness about the use of any material thing is a failure to realize the full implications of the doctrines of both creation and redemption. Yet despite Paul's blunt statement that the position of the weak is not biblical, he says this, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. Christians have the hardest time for that. How can me sitting down having a glass of wine be a clean activity and the same Christian sitting down and having a glass of wine is a violation of their conscience and sin? How can that be? Well, Paul says it can be. And the Bible says it can be. So let's talk about it in a minute. He fills out the meaning in verse 23. If someone acts against their conscience, then even if the act is not wrong, it is wrong for them. Why? Because they are not acting in accord with what they hold to be right behavior for a Christian. Their faith has not informed their behavior. And even though it is not objectively wrong, and but Paul says everything that does not come from faith is what? Sin. So let's look at freedom causing stumbling. This means that though the strong are right, biblically speaking, they are not simply to shrug their shoulders at their weaker brothers and continue to enjoy their freedom. Paul tells them in verse 15 that in this specific case, eating meat as they are free means two things are happening. First, they're not being loving. The continuing debt to love one another applies no less to those inside the church than outside. When you deliberately do something you know is grievous to a Christian brother or sister, you are not being loving. We're not talking about activities we're commanded to do, but we're talking about areas that are disputable. When we deliberately do what grieves another, we're being unloving. Second, the work of God is being destroyed. Paul tells the, the strong that they can destroy the weaker brother. What does it mean to destroy? Well, it doesn't mean to totally ruin them and send them to hell. Uh, Romans 8 clearly tells us nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And to believe that the insensitivity of the strong toward the weak is really enough to send a Christian to hell is way out there. 
So we cannot conclude that the strong have the power to destroy someone's Christianity, but it gets clearer in verse 20 of 14, where we are told that the insensitivity of the strong can destroy the work of God. That is the work that God is doing in every believer, the good work which he has begun in you to bring him or her into the fullness of the likeness of Christ. In other words, the strong can slow down or thwart the maturing of the weak into uh, Christ-like character, and it's possible that the work of God could mean the church, and thus the strong are harming relationships that God has built within the church. How does this look? Let's say a weak person is convinced that all drinking of any alcohol is a sin for everyone. When he sees another believing do it, believer do it, especially one he respects or likes, then uh, he might say to himself, well, I guess it's okay then, because peer pressure of the strong may lead that person to drink. If he does so without being truly convinced that it is not contrary to God's will, that will hurt his conscience. He will feel guilty about doing it. Yet now that he is ignoring that guilt, he may become open to doing other things that are truly wrong. Here's a real-life example. I knew a girl in high school who came from a very strict church background that taught it was sinful for women to wear makeup. But the peer pressure at school and from other Christian girls raised in other churches led her to begin putting on makeup (laughs) after leaving home in the morning and wiping it off before coming home in the evening. Now, now, though the Bible never commit nowhere, as far as I know, forbids makeup. This girl was violating her conscience as she did this. She was not convinced. Spiritually within herself, she was choosing popularity over faithfulness to God. And as a result, she soon found herself more open to real violations of God's will in the area of sexuality. She had stumbled because her Christian friends had mocked her principles, misguided though they were. Now what the strong have forgotten. What time is it? So Paul says to the strong, when you look down on a weaker believer and don't change your behavior, here's what you're forgetting. Now, if I don't get to this because of time, let me say this. There are situations Paul is a situationalist. He's not a situation ethics, a la Joseph Flesher, but he is a situationalist. If you find yourself in the company of a person whose conscience is condemned in the practice, you as a strong believer, limit your liberty out of what? Love for the other believer. So you may dispense with something you are free to do, free to enjoy, free to participate in, because of the overriding principle that I must not cause my brother to stumble. So the strong have forgotten who they are harming, your brother for whom Christ died. Paul is reminding the strong that Jesus paid with his life for every Christian an enormous price. If Jesus died for a weak brother or sister, then we must treat them with care and sensitivity no matter how weak they are and how annoying they may be to us. We must value them. Jesus gave up his life for them. We can certainly give up a little freedom here and there. Further, the freedom which we know to be good will be seen as evil by weaker brothers if the strong simply keep on indulging. 
Take eating meat. If a strong believer eats meat in front of a weaker believer without gen gently seeking to educate their conscience and refraining if there's disagreement, the weaker believer will end up looking at what is good, eating a meat, and thinking of it as wrong and evil. So the goal of the stronger believer is not merely to restrain your liberty, but also to do what? Educate, teach the weaker believer the freedom they have in Christ. Now, most of you know I came out of a tradition that believed in total abstinence. And I can remember going to restaurants with my dad and mom, our family. We go to a barbecue restaurant, and I look over, and I see some people from the church I went to drinking beer. And I remember leaning over to my dad going, are they going to hell? Because that's what we thought. We thought anybody did that's going to hell. They couldn't possibly be a Christian and drink a beer. It was absolutely wrong. And so I was, at least in that regard, a weaker brother. And I needed someone to educate my conscience and help me understand. There's an old joke that, uh, and please take this tongue in cheek. Do not literalize this. Do not make it walk on all four. I better not even tell it. But here's an old joke. When I became a Christian, God took away all my vices. When I became reformed, he gave them all back. No, that's a joke. <laughs> no, that's not true. The stronger brother, the more mature Christian, to me, has the greater responsibility. It is the one who understands the gospel the most who has to give the most and serve the most and lay down the most. So, they are forgetting what really matters in the Christian life. Being members of the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. We are not to see our lives all about enjoying our freedoms, especially the freedoms that justification by faith alone brings. Rather, it is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our behavior is to be guided by what brings these things about. For our brothers and sisters in faith as well as for ourselves, the strong must remember to be living sacrifices in a way that pleases God. So, Paul is also, though, teaching the weak here that they need to see the rules and regulations about material things miss the point of the kingdom. That it is rather about transformed character and mutual love and service. And so the principle which guides the behavior of the strong is not to be how can I enjoy my freedom in the gospel here, but rather what will lead to peace with my brother and the encouragement and holiness of my brother. This is how the strong accept the weaker Christian. The word accept, proslambano, means more than simply to bear with. A better translation would be to welcome. For the word means to receive one into one circle and one's love. And it's very important because there is a tendency of the strong to become more distant from the weak who disapprove of their practices. Uh, for example, no, I'm not going to say that. All right. Um, and so the principle which guides the behavior of the strong is not to be, how can I enjoy my freedom in the gospel here, but rather, what will lead to the peace with my brother and encouragement and holiness of my brother? And so we make every effort not to write off the weaker brother, but to stay close to him. After all, if we are stronger in some area, 
then as long as we have our weaker brother's spiritual good as our priority, we know that it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to fall. But you got to be careful here. Stumble and fall means more than just bothering the weaker brother. A grumpy Christian could blackmail the whole church in that case, and you get the lowest denominator of Christian liberty possible. They're constantly getting irritated and upset by other church members who are offending their standards of proper Christian behavior. The strong don't have to refrain from everything that upsets someone else. But if the weak have a very deep, settled conviction, if they are convinced, if they're clearly being tempted to bitterness or spiritual confusion, then the strong should refrain out of love. A good example of this is worship forms. If a strong person can enjoy a great variety of music and style, but a weaker person can only utilize one, then at times it might be good to show deference. So how can the strong and the weak live together? In verses 22 to 23, Paul is once more addressing both the strong and the weak. In verse 22, he says, keep your views to yourself. Keep your views to yourself. We need to recognize when some practice in a disputable is in a disputable area and when it is among the things that consciences are involved, when something's not com- clearly forbidden or commanded in Scripture, don't press or loudly display your views and practices on the subject. Keep them to yourself. Now, you don't press this to an extreme. Paul is not saying that you cannot give your opinion if asked, nor is he saying you can never make an evaluation. Rather, Paul means that once we recognize this is a disputable area, we should mind our own business instead of insisting that this dispute becomes the whole preoccupation and business of the church. Satan would love that. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's a good illustration. Uh, Christians must live according to their conscience. If a believer doubts that a particular act is allowed by God, then to do it anyway is to act in rejection of what they consider being faithful, that is, to sin. Weaker believers need to remember not to violate their consciences. Strong believers need to remember not to encourage their brothers to sin. And that's what it means to not pass judgment in disputable areas. Um, Let me go on and say this, and I'll be done. Keith, I'm not going to get to 15, but 15, 1 through 7, takes this over into the next chapter and expands it to include people in the world. That's all I can say about it. (laughs) If you want to say more, feel free. Or you want to correct this next week. Go ahead. Uh, If there's a broad disagreement among mature Bible-honoring Christians on some issue, Like, for example, baptism. We must be willing to concede that it is disputable. Anyone who wants to put everything into the disputable area needs to be warned about the dangers of that tendency. And anyone who wants to put nothing in disputable areas must be warned about the danger of that perspective. After a group of Christians agree to put an issue in a disputable area, then they need to follow Paul's advice. The weaker must be willing to really review the biblical data, rethink their positions, and refuse to condemn those who disagree. Instead, they must allow others to follow their own consciences in that area. 
At the same time, the stronger must also be willing to review biblical data, rethink their position, and be willing to curb their freedom to avoid discouraging or harming fellow believers. Thus, then, or this will then be a Christian community that exhibits righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, and it, and gives to members of God's kingdom for which the Lord Jesus died to bring all believers weak and strong into his presence. That's it. Any questions? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Mark. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, many people. Uh, no, nah, I won't say that. I gotta go. I don't want to offend anybody. So you know how much I hate to do that. See you later. Thank you.